Blake White began our conference, and he's taking us second to the last of our sessions here. But I always appreciate Blake's interaction. Again, Blake's one of the kind of guys I enjoy so much because he interacts on so many levels. And so I'll ask Blake, what about this? And he'll have an answer. And what about this guy here? Oh, yeah, this is. And so it helps me as a pastor to have uh, such a, a friend on the occasions we get together and, and converse on these things. So, Blake, come and minister God's Word as you're led by the Spirit. We've had some good stuff, and uh, Mark 1 is some more good stuff. We're going to look at Mark 1. Mark 1 is one of those passages. I was telling my wife as I, as before I came, Mark 1, and there's a lot of passages of Scripture this way, where if if you don't believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, you don't believe there's a God and you believe that the Bible is man-made, then Mark himself is worthy of worship with how intricately he's putting together things. So as we'll see, I hope to demonstrate, as you'll see from the way Mark is handling, especially the Old Testament, that uh, he's clearly being moved by the Spirit to produce a God-breathed text. So let's read Mark 1, 1 to 15. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He was preaching. Someone more powerful than I will come after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as He came up out of the water, He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to Him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. I take delight in you. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels began to serve him. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask His blessing upon it. Father, again, we do thank You that You're the God who speaks and You've spoken and You've preserved Your words. And we get to spend an hour here looking at 15 verses that come from Your Spirit. What a blessing. What a privilege. I pray that You would instruct us, edify us, help us to keep Christ in His rightful place, preeminent, exalted, Lord of lords and King of kings. We pray it through Him. Amen. I think one of the, the great deficiencies of our generation is biblical illiteracy. It is really sad how little Christians read their Bibles. I'm in a church that's, that's very elderly. When I came, I think the average age was probably 65, maybe more, no exaggeration. And most have been in the church the whole life. So we're talking 40, 50, 60 years in the church, yet totally, not totally, 
but very ignorant of just basic Christian truth from the Bible. There wasn't a Sunday school class for the youth when I got there, so I just jumped in to meet a need, and I'm teaching them and Christian parents. And I mean, I can't assume anything. I can't assume that there's a knowledge of the fact that there's an Old and New Testament. So very biblically illiterate. We just don't know our Bible. So the need of the day is pastor theologians to help and preach and teach and, and, and vibe and vibe a value for the Word of God, not only on Sundays, but every day. In particular, I think the Old Testament. We don't have a clue how to handle the Old Testament. There are so many distractions today, increasingly today, with social media, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, Google, iPads, iPods, YouTube. So to spend time thinking about the Isaiahic backgrounds of Mark, well, ain't nobody got time for that, Right? But it's to our detriment. It's to our detriment. If we miss the background, we miss the story of Jesus. We don't understand the background, we won't understand Jesus fully. So before we jump into Mark, let's think just a bit, little bit about the background. And then as we go, we'll see that the New Testament is indeed just the tip of the larger iceberg. It's like Mark takes his biscuit and just sops it up in the syrup of the Old Testament. He even double dips it in the syrup of the Old Testament to show, it, show us that Jesus is the climax of the plan of God. So, so stepping back, of course, we know God creates, and after the fall, He promises to make a great nation out of Abraham's family, and He does just that. He redeems them from Egypt with the Exodus, and the Exodus is the foundation, the foundational saving event in the story of Scripture, and it has the cluster of themes. Uh, we've got the, the enemy, the, the wicked tyrant, the chosen leader, the victory, the redemption by blood, the new vocation, the new calling, the new way of life, the presence of God, the Passover, the inheritance. All this cluster of themes that begins in the book of Exodus. Well, it actually has, has earlier roots than that, but Exodus is the foundational explicit event. This whole idea that God delivers His people from hostile oppression is a fundamental motif in Scripture. Again, the greatest of all God's mighty acts for the Jewish person. So He gives them the law. He tells them to keep it even though He knows they won't. And of course they don't. They commit adultery on the wedding night. God took Israel out of Egypt, but as many have said, He had yet to take Egypt out of Israel. Still had stiff necks and stony hearts. Enter the prophets. Prophets recognize the problem, and in a, in a whole variety of images, they speak of this new thing God is going to do. Jeremiah, the new covenant. Ezekiel, the new heart. The heart of flesh that will replace the heart of stone. And then Isaiah what the patristics called the fifth gospel, with the, the images of new creation, new exodus, the kingdom. God's going to come back as He did before. He's going to come back and He's going to do the same. He's going to redeem them, not from Egypt, but Babylon at this point. And Isaiah points to this new and more glorious exodus based upon the first but greater. And Isaiah chapter 40 calls for the preparation of the way of God's return. And we're going to read quite a bit from Isaiah in particular today, this morning. So keep, a, keep your finger in Mark, but flip back to Isaiah 40. And as Steve mentioned, Isaiah 40 and following is just rich with gospel, foundational for the New Testament. Calling them to prepare a way for the new exodus. Let's read Isaiah 41 to 3. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of forced labor is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double 
for all her sins. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Flip over to chapter 43, verse 2. We could read a lot. We're just going to read just a, just a few. Isaiah 43, verse 2, I will be with you when you pass through the waters. Allusion to the Exodus. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire and the flame will not burn you. Look at chapter 43, verse 19. Look, I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The animals of the field will honor me, jackals and ostriches, because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Look at Isaiah 51, verses 9 to 11. Wake up, wake up, put on the strength of the Lord's power. Wake up as in days past, as in generations of long ago. Wasn't it you who hacked Rahab to pieces? Who pierced the sea monster? Wasn't it you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the seabed into a road for the redeemed to pass over? And the redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee. So we see it again and again and again in the book of Isaiah. This new way. And of course, I did know that Isaiah is the shortest out of Ezekiel and Jeremiah because last night Peter Gentry read them, read the words of the Hebrew to show me. So that, that was, uh, we're there. We can move past that. I'm sure y'all were on the same page as well. Of course, we knew that. But we have the fifth gospel here calling for the new exodus, the way of God's return, the end of Babylonian exile, Yahweh's returning to His people. God is coming back to be king. And Mark begins his story by quoting from this section of Isaiah to hint at the fact that the whole story of Jesus, the whole story of the gospel is to be understood against this backdrop, against the backdrop of Isaiah's vision. Rick Watts writes, quote, the original Exodus pattern, deliverance from Egypt, journey through the desert, and arrival in the promised land is transformed into the hope of a grander new Exodus, deliverance of the exiles from the power of Babylon and its idols, Yahweh's leading of a provision for His blind people along the way, and His arrival and enthronement in a gloriously restored Zion, end quote. So some of the Israelites did return to the land, right? Remember when Cyrus released them, but this glorious vision of a new exodus had not yet been fulfilled. After the completion of the temple foundation, recall in Ezra, many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. It's not the same. They were still in exile. God had not yet acted on His promises. The kingdom had not yet dawned, in other words. Let's look again at Mark 1.1. 1, 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What an extremely dense way to introduce the gospel. Mark 
1, 1 to 3 in particular. It's the key that unlocks the whole story that follows. In the beginning. For good Jewish years, of course, you hear beginning, you think in the beginning. You think of creation. Here we have new creation. The beginning of the gospel. And the gospel is sandwiched in this prologue. Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel. Then look over at Mark 1, 15. Repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, what does it mean? What does gospel mean here? Well, for a Gentile audience, gospel, for a, for a Greco-Roman background, gospel is about the victory of an emperor. The word they used to celebrate was gospel. Or a birthday of an emperor. It was good news. There's a famous pre-inscription about Octavian from 9 B.C. And here's what it says. Again, this is paganism. Because providence has ordered our life in a divine way, and since the emperor, through his epiphany, appearance, another message for the way appearance is used, through his appearance has exceeded the hopes of former good news, euangelia, surpassing not only the benefactors who came before him, but also leaving no hope that anyone in the future will surpass him. And since the birthday of the God was... For the world, the beginning of His good news. Gospel. End quote. So the emperor was considered a god and his birth or his enthronement is gospel. Good news. So for the Roman Empire with Greco-Roman background, Greeks, the gospel is about the coming of God. Jews, however would immediately think of the vision of the new Exodus in Isaiah. This is where the word comes from in the Bible. The word gospel is found in Isaiah 40. In fact, let's just go back. You want fingers in Isaiah and in Mark. Let's go back to Isaiah 40, verse 9. Zion, herald of gospel. Zion, herald of good news. Go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news. Raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Or look over at Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful, you know this passage from Romans, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings good news, news of good things, gospel, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Look at Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. Euangelizo. To the poor, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Joel Marcus writes, The gospel, as it has been written in Isaiah the prophet, for Isaiah prophesies a new action of God who will make his victorious way through the wilderness and lead his people back to the promised land in a saving act of holy war. And Mark identifies this act with Jesus' way, his progress through the world, his movement up, to death and resurrection in Jerusalem, end quote. So for Isaiah to proclaim the gospel is to proclaim the return of Yahweh to redeem His people. For Jews, gospel meant new exodus. So in the wisdom of God, the word gospel has both Greco-Roman roots and Jewish roots, but they're not actually that different, are they? 
In both contexts, it's a public announcement of victory. In both worldviews, a new new king is coming to town. And that's good news. That's gospel. As one put it, the beginning of the good news is about the changing of the guard, the passing on of one era and the dawning of another eschatological one. End quote. So back to Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, again, as mentioned last time, Christ is not a last name. It's not a surname. It's a royal title. Psalm 2.2 says, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and against His Christos, His Christ, His anointed one. This is what Christ means. It's Messiah. Perhaps a better translation of Yesu Christu would be King Jesus rather than Jesus Christ because so many of us just assume it's a, it's a full name. Some of the newer translations, the, the new NIV and the Holman Christian will often translate Christ as Messiah. I think that's a good move. Jesus, Messiah, King Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the gospel of the Son of God. And according to Jewish thought, this is primarily a messianic one. That is another royal title. He's the king. Second Samuel twelve, uh, Second Samuel seven, twelve to sixteen, Davidic covenant. God told David he would raise up a descendants and establish his kingdom forever. God would be a father to him, and the Davidic descendant would be a son. So in John we read, Rabbi Nathaniel replied, "You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel." So first and foremost, royal, but by the end of the gospel, we know that it's much more than just a royal title that points to his divinity. Let's look at Mark 1, 2, and 3. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophets, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. On first glance, this just looks like a simple Old Testament quotation, right? Bible's full of them. Oh, no, 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 no. Let's not move too quickly. You see, the Bible, as one has said, is shallow enough for kids to splash around in. We can read it and say, yeah, in the Old Testament, but it's deep enough for elephants to wade in. There's so much more here than merely a simple Old Testament quotation. It's a composite quotation. It's a combination of Malachi 3.1, Exodus 23.20 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. The prophets had been silent since Malachi, and the question is, where is God? When will He fulfill His promises? In light of the discouragement and disappointment, there's an appeal to this end-time eschatological messenger in the preparation of Yahweh's way. John is Elijah. The coming of John marks the beginning of the end. That's why we see in Matthew that all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. John is the eschatological prophet who prepares the way for a final act of God. So Mark combines these. He combines Malachi 3.1, Isaiah 40, and Exodus 23. Well, what's the significance of Malachi? Why Malachi 3.1? Let me read Malachi 3.1. See, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple the messenger of the covenant you desire. See, he's coming, says the Lord. End quote. Well, remember, Malachi is post-exile. The temple's been rebuilt. They're in the lands. But not all is well. 
It's a time of frustration, a time of disappointment. Malachi 2.17 says, you've, you've wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied Him? When you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and He is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? End quote. You see, God is still absent, but the exile is supposed to be over. The Jews of Jesus' day were in the land as well, and the temple was there, but just like in Malachi's day, exile was still a reality. Isaiah's new Exodus vision had not yet come to fruition. They were disappointed because the return hadn't met their expectations. The return didn't sound like what Isaiah and others had described. The land was far from paradise. There was drought. Crops were failing. The wicked were prospering. The people of God were full of doubt. The priests were unfaithful. Married pagan women, they despised the name of Yahweh. They offered defiled food and blemished and sick animals for sacrifice. So God says He's going to reject their sacrifice and He's going to spread the dung of the blemished animals on the faces of the priests and He's going to take them both away. As they defiled God, so God would return and defile them. And as the animal waste was to be removed from the temple and burned, they'd be removed along with it. And they'd be replaced with the nations who will present offerings in every place. Just like we see in Isaiah 56 and Isaiah 66. So the coming of God will include both rescue and judgment. Malachi 3.5, I will come to you in judgment. He's coming to His temple and who can endure the day of His coming? Which, by the way, is picked up in Revelation 6, which I take to be John's Olivet Discourse. That's another message for another time. Malachi says he's coming. Who can endure? And so Mark sees this coming. Mark intentionally sandwiches Jesus' temple action with the fig tree narratives. Because his whole vision is structured around the new coming of God that's going to involve both salvation and judgment. So the temple actions are sandwiched with Mark. Very intentional. I was recently heard someone teach about the fig tree, and he just said, well, Jesus was just frustrated. I'm not sure why he was frustrated. He should have known it wasn't the season, but he was just frustrated, so he cursed it and went into the temple. There's a little more going on than that. The messenger came. The messenger warned. The messenger said, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, and every tree that lacks fruit will be chopped down, which, of course, is a metaphor previously used of Assyria against Israel in Isaiah 10. And now in John's day, it's not Assyria, it's Rome. And Yahweh is ready to swing. So through this allusion to Malachi, Mark is showing us that Isaiah's new Exodus vision will include judgments. And as we'll see from the latter part of Isaiah 40, the 40 to 66, we see it there as well. Judgment begins with the household of God. So Mark is adding an element of this judgment coming to the temple to wipe out the unfaithful leadership of Israel. Malachi 3.1 is itself a reworking of Exodus 23.20. Exodus 23.20 says this, I'm going to send a messenger before you to protect you on the way and bring you to the place I have prepared. Remember the context of Exodus. If you remember Dr. Gentry's comments, at Exodus 19, you have the historical prologue to the Old Covenant, and then chapter 20, the ten words, ten commandments, 21 to 23 are the rules or the ordinances, and 24 is the covenant ceremony. We're in Exodus 23, 20, right in the giving of the law, and this messenger was, was key. This messenger is the key to their victory and the key to their inheritance. 
And of course, as the Exodus, as I said in the intro, it's, it's the, it's foundational to the nation's identity. Exodus is about the covenantal coming of the delivering presence of God to his people away from Egypt to where God would dwell. So the illusion here evokes memory of the founding of event, events as the model for future hope, future hope of the presence and redemption of God. But it would also bring painful memories of the unfaithfulness of Israel. God is still absent in Malachi's day and in Mark's day. This is why Malachi alludes back to the Exodus. The messenger again would lead, this time, the new Exodus people from bondage into the presence of God. What happened in Exodus would happen again in Malachi's day. But the key difference here, though, recall, Malachi is in the land. Malachi's in Judea, and he's appealing to this messenger that would redeem them from bondage to freedom. Jerusalem has become Egypt. Again, Isaiah chapter 40. A voice of one crying out, Prepare the way of the Lord. Isaiah 43. Prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Isaiah had said a highway for our God, Theu. Did you notice what Mark said? He said His highway. So Mark changes the highway of God and Isaiah to His highway and Mark. And it refers to the coming of Jesus. Dr. Wellam said yesterday, there's many scholars who see the synoptic gospels as a lower Christology. They're just not reading carefully enough. It's through Jesus, the coming of Jesus, that Israel's new exodus hopes will come to fruition. Isaiah changes, I mean, Mark changes highway for our God to His highway to apply to the coming of Yahweh to the coming of God the Son. It's through Jesus that God is returning to His people. Here we see, and this is no surprise for us, a Christological transformation of Israel's Scriptures. The promises of God and Isaiah are coming to fulfillment through the ministry of Jesus. In the Son, God is returning to His people to redeem and to restore. So Mark is sounding the alarm here. This is an invasion story. God is coming back to town. Get ready. Make way. Roll out the red carpet. This declaration should make us pause and consider something. Again, for us, this is, this is no surprise. Each gospel narrates the claim that the prophet's future tense has now become present reality with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The gospels are the climax and the capstone to the story of Israel. As Peter Lightheart puts it, for Christians, the story of Jesus is the final chapter of the story of Israel. But notice Mark only attributes the quote to Isaiah as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Well, this is no mistake on Mark's part. Again, liberals are so myopic. This is a highly loaded theological assertion. He ascribes it to Isaiah the prophet in light of Mark's whole theological framework, which is based on the Isaiahic New Exodus, the return of Yahweh to rescue and purify His people. So Isaiah is, is, the, is the emphasis in the background here, and, and so is the whole New Testament, based upon so much of what Isaiah said in chapters 40 and following. That's why it's called the fifth gospel by the fathers. There are 590 references from 63 chapters of Isaiah found in 23 New Testament books. Isn't that incredible? Friends, we need to know Isaiah. Let me say that again. Five hundred, because I know I'll be asked it in the Q and A if I don't say it again. 
590 references from 63 chapters of Isaiah found in 23 New Testament books. That's incredible. Watts describes this Isaiahic New Exodus as the prophetic transfer of Israel's memory of her founding moment into a model for her later future hope. And, and Mark includes Malachi to show that this salvation will include judgment on the enemies of God, which in a terrible turn of events are now the leaders of Israel. Hence the sending of John, the new Elijah, to preach repentance and warn of the coming wrath. For those with ears to hear, Mark is on the loudspeaker announcing that the prophecies concerning the coming of God are being fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. In other words, the kingdom of God has come. Let's look at verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were flocking to him and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. This is scandalous. This is offering forgiveness outside the temple? Forgiveness without the temple? Who do you think you are? And note that people are streaming from Jerusalem. Prophetic vision was the nation streaming to Jerusalem. Here, all the people of Israel, all the people of Jerusalem are flocking to the wilderness. Again, a subversive critique of Jerusalem and its system, which is a rather large backstory of the Gospels. Subtitles for the Gospels could be Jesus versus Jerusalem. His baptism and His message was for the restoration of Israel and their preparation for judgment. And Mark clearly alludes to Elijah in his description here of John. A very strange guy. We read, uh, we read various things to our kids at night. One of the ones we love is the Jesus storybook Bible. And, uh, there John looks, looks sort of strange. You know, looks rugged and he's got some honey and, and, uh, my son kind of has category confusion because we're turning, hey, look, John the Baptist eating honey like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> eating locusts. I had a neighbor who had a father who had been in the military and he, he ate locusts. And he would always tell us, you know, if you find locusts, I'll eat it. So, of course, that turned us into lifelong locust hunters. Turns out that things are pretty hard to find. But we did find one, one time. And he did eat it. He said it was juicy. Mark's saying, if you're not following me, John is the great end-time Elijah. He's the forerunner of God's end-time action. Can you imagine? I mean, just think about the faithful Jewish person who knows not all is well. He knows not all is well. But he's faithfully the faithful father leading his family. He knows the Isaiah scroll. He loves the Isaiah scroll. And he knows it's not there. He knows we're not where we need to be. He knows the system is corrupt. He knows there's no king. But he's waiting and he's hopeful. And at that time, there was lots of expectation that, that it could happen any day. And he's at work and he's working hard. And he catches wind that there's a prophet preaching forgiveness and restoration, baptizing at the Jordan. And so he tries to get back to work, and he just his, his, his heart is lit up. Could it be? He's praying, Lord, may it, may it be. May it be. I'm so tired. So tired of being you know, pressed by the thumb. I hope this is it, Lord. Come, return. Bring about restoration. And he tries to finish his work, and he goes home, and he busts in the door. And he had taught his kids this for years and waiting. He says, there's a preacher. We're going. There's someone preaching. He's a prophet. He looks like Elijah. Could be Elijah. We're going to go. Gather your stuff up. Well, are we going to eat first, honey? No, no, no. We're not going to eat. We'll pick up a Hebrew happy meal on the way. Let's go. We're going to go see what's going on here. I mean, can you imagine the, the excitement 
that would have come with this announcement. It would have set the audience buzzing with enthusiastic expectations. Verse 7, he was preaching, someone more powerful than I will come after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's not the hero of the story here. Now, if John were a modern evangelical, he'd have his own network, he'd have his own website, Facebook page, book deal. Whether or not he writes the book is no big deal. Ghostwriter. Whether or not he pays $250,000 to make sure that it gets to the New York Times bestseller list, oh, no big deal. It's about spreading the message. Not John. Not John. John must decrease. The Messiah must increase. John's not even worthy to be a servant of Christ. He just points the way to the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John prepares the way. He clears the way. And he gets out of the way. He had it right. There'd be a baptism with the Spirit. In the last days, Yahweh would pour out His Spirit. And here we're not talking about mere spiritual refreshment, but the dynamic and empowering presence of God Himself. You see, when we hear Spirit, many of us think of weird charismatic things or something. But when they heard the Spirit, they thought eschatology. First century Jewish person heard the Spirit, they thought God making good on His promises. Just a few of the key passages. Isaiah 32, 15. Until the Spirit from heaven is poured out on us. Isaiah 44, 3. I'll pour out my Spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Language rooted in the Abrahamic covenant, by the way. Ezekiel 36, 26. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. Joel 2, 28. After this, I'll pour out my Spirit on all humanity. The last days are now. The coming of God and Jesus and the baptism of the Spirit have come. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as He came up, by the way, we've heard a whole lot about a whole covenantal understanding of baptism. In a real, in a real, real way, the reason I'm a Baptist is because of the relationship of the covenants. There's a lot more to say, but I will just point out, He did come up out of the water. This is not all we have to say, but Jesus was immersed. Verse 10, as soon as He came up out of the water... He saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending to Him like a dove. The baptism takes place where the Exodus story reached its goal and where Israel received her inheritance. And as an aside, if this were man-made, if this were purely man-made, I don't think the human authors would have put a baptism for the forgiveness of sins for their leader. They probably would have left that out. But Jesus here is not needing forgiveness. He's identifying with His people. And He's showing His agreement with the message of John the Baptist. He's showing His affirmation of this restoration movement. And as He comes up, the heavens are torn open. Heaven and earth no longer separated. Supernatural event, God invading human history. And surprise, surprise, this is rooted in Isaiah. Flip back to Isaiah 63. Let's read Isaiah 63, 15 and following. Israel's prayer. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty home 
holy and beautiful. Where is your zeal and your might? Your yearning and your compassion are withheld from me. Yet you are our father. Even though Abraham does not know us and Israel doesn't recognize us, you, Yahweh, are our father from ancient times. Your name is our redeemer. Why, Yahweh, do you make us stray from your ways? You harden our hearts so we do not fear you. Return because of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people had a possession for a little while, but our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those you never ruled over, like those not called by your name. If only you would tear the heavens open and come down so that mountains would quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood and fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your enemies so that nations will tremble at your presence. When you did awesome works that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened. No eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for Him. Asking for God's help to come, speak again, look down from heaven, split the heavens and return to restore your people. And God has come in power. The long-awaited new exodus has been accomplished. The kingdom of God has come near. The heavens were torn. And the rending of the heavens, that's just another way of saying grace, isn't it? What is grace? The heavens tore open. He hasn't left to us to ourselves. The God of all power entered our world. No longer are heaven and earth shut up against each other. He enters in. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I will never forget. Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. This word torn occurs only one other place in the Gospel of Mark. After His death on the cross, the curtain of the sanctuary is torn, schizo. And it's torn from top to bottom. This is God's doing. After the heavens are torn open, the Spirit descends. And Mark may mean that He descended gently like a dove landing, or it may mean a visual form in which Jesus saw the Spirit. And again, dove, when is the other significant time we've seen a dove in biblical history? Noah, the new Adam, new creation. Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. We saw that according to the prophets, God would pour out His Spirit in the last days. But Isaiah had also promised that the future Davidic king, the Messiah, would be anointed by the Spirit. Just read a few of those. Isaiah 11, Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 61.1. That was Isaiah 11.1. Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Isaiah had also prophesied that the Spirit would anoint the servants. Isaiah 42.1, which we'll see again. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I've put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. So the spirit has anointed the Davidic king. The spirit has anointed the servant, just like God had promised through Isaiah. Verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. 
You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. This is the voice of God Almighty, God the Father. Thus, it is determinative. And here we have another composite quotation of Scripture. This time, Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1. Psalm 2 about the Davidic king and Isaiah 42 about the servants. Psalm 2 says this, I will declare the, Psalm 2-7, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Psalm 2 is an enthronement psalm. It's about those who are elevated to the throne. It's a psalm written to celebrate the new Davidic king, not the historic David, but the eschatological David. Psalm 2-1, why do the nations rebel and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and His anointed one and His Christ. Again, sadly, in Psalm 2, the enemies of God have now become the leaders of Israel to conspire against the Lord and conspire against His Messiah. The enemies of God in Psalm 2 have become Israel's leaders. But the word beloved is not from Psalm 2. Mark, again, com combining Old Testament verses showing that all the streams of redemptive history flow to the feet of the royal Galilean. Beloved may refer to Abraham and Isaac, where in the Septuagint, three times Isaac is called the beloved, agapeton, the beloved son. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, may refer to that. There's a clear reference to Isaiah 42.1. I want to read, read it again. It says, this is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. Let's read Mark 1 again, Mark 1 11. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. So he's the servant of Isaiah. But you know, it's not that different from Psalm 2, is it? Because the servant himself has a royal role. He has a kingly role. He brings about the reign of God, chapter 52. By the way, think about that. Isaiah 52, your God reigns, which goes into what? Isaiah 53. Cross and kingdom go together. The servant through His suffering, brings about the rule of God. That always goes together. In fact, look over at Matthew chapter 4. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Go away, Satan. For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. But flip over to Matthew chapter 16. Verse 23. Satan offers the rule without the cross. Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. Matthew 16, verse 23. 21, from then on, Jesus began to point out to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests and scribes, to be killed and be raised the third day. And then Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke Him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. And He turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Don't you know that the kingdom and the cross always go together? You're an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. The suffering servant and the Davidic king are one and the same. And to oppose it, it's to do the work of Satan. Get behind me, Satan. The Davidic king and the suffering servant 
and the beloved Son. Worship Him. Marvel at Him. Marvel at the wisdom of God's plan. Jesus is the exclamation point. Look at verse 12. Back to Mark 1.12. Immediately the Spirit drove Him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels began to serve Him. So you notice there's confirmation by the Father. You are my beloved Son. And now He's ready for ministry. And isn't that the kindness of God? He treats us the same way. We're confirmed as sons through faith and then sent out for the battle. We all have various battles, but we go with the confirmation of the Father. The indicative always grounds the imperative, and that is God's kindness. Here we have a wilderness rerun. Israel spent 40 years of wandering, experienced after the Exodus. And here, after passing through the waters of baptism, like Israel of old, passing through the waters, now Jesus heads to the wilderness. He must be sent to the wilderness to experience the temptations of the people whose sin He will bear. He's the true and faithful Israel. He's the true vine. He's the firstborn. He's the Davidic son. He's the king. And He's tempted by Satan. And like Job, the Spirit sent him out. The Spirit sends him out to be tempted. As in Job, the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Satan, of course, is hostile to the purposes of God. But as Luther is said to have said, notice the qualification, Jack. As Luther is said to have said, the devil is God's devil. He has hostile purposes, but the Lord sends him out. The Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. He's God's devil. What about this random mention of the animals? Well, recall how David had handled the animals before rising to the throne. And Mark's already mentioned Isaiah 11, 1 to 9, and the future David who will be anointed by the Spirit. That passage also says that in his reign, the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat. Well, currently, when the wolf lies down with the lamb, it's because the lamb's inside the belly of the wolf. Isaiah 43, 20 spoke of the animals of the field will honor me, jackals and ostriches, because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Later in Isaiah 65, 25, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, but the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. So when the kingdom comes, there'll be peace. There'll be a restoration of Eden-like harmony. He was with the wild animals. The current hostile relationship between animals and people will be reversed. The show, When Animals Attack, will no longer exist. Here we have the dawn of the new creation. Look at verse 14. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. The dominion of God has come. The, God, the kingdom of God is His divine saving activity. Not a place, not a thing. His saving action. God is taking control of His world. The time is fulfilled. The plan of God has reached its climax. The dawn of the eschatological age is at hand. The climactic and most decisive age of human history. The fulfillment of Israel's prophetic hope has begun. This is not something totally off in the future. The kingdom comes in the first coming of Jesus. It has drawn near. Perfect tense. It has come near. The decisive moment has arrived. Jesus is declaring the arrival of the new exodus. 
Luke 9.31, notice the footnote in your Bible. His departure is His exodus. Jesus has brought about the new exodus. Not Egypt, not Babylon, not Assyria, but those that were back of Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria. He's redeemed us, not from Rome, but from Satan, sin, and death. Satan, the enemy behind the Pharaoh who held us in captivity. We no longer walk according to the prince of the power of the air. We're no longer blinded by the God of this age. The strong man has been bound. He's redeemed us from Satan. Redeem is Exodus language. He's redeemed us from sin. He's redeemed us from the power of sin. In union with Christ by the power of the Spirit, we now can walk in newness of life. He's freed us from the power of sin. He's redeemed us from the penalty of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Be of sin the double cure. He has been. Both its power and its penalty. Both its guilt and its power. We've been redeemed from Satan. We've been redeemed from sin. And Satan uses sin. He's the accuser. You're unworthy. You're a sinner. God couldn't love you. And he's right. We're not to say he's wrong. He's right. But he's forgotten the refrain. He's singing the redemption song, Jesus saves. So we agree. You don't know the half of it. You're right. But I know one who has pleased God. And I know one that with God is well pleased. And I'm hidden in him. So now I'm hidden in Christ. You don't, God doesn't see all of my mess. He sees the son who's perfection. He's freed us from Satan. He's freed us from sin. He's freed us from the tyranny of death. He's brought about the new exodus. We've been redeemed. We're no longer bound by the lifelong fear of death. Death has lost its sting. Death has lost its victory. Jesus had the final say over death, so death couldn't have the final say over us. The death of Jesus was the death knell to death itself. We're all going to gather. We're going to hold hands at a funeral, but we're not going to be mourning. We're going to be celebrating because we're all going to attend the funeral of death itself. We've been redeemed by the new exodus work of Israel's servant king, the Passover lamb, the faithful Davidic king. What's the necessary thing to do? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Submit yourself to the lordship of King Jesus. Drop your agenda and take up his. Which, as we see from the rest of the gospel, requires a reworking of categories. Following this king means cross-bearing. You remember the sons of Zebedee who wanted to come in, Jesus, when you come into your glory, in other words, when you become king, when you come into your glory, we want to be on your right side and we want to be on your left. We want to be, we want you in the middle and we want to be there and we want to have authority over. And Jesus says, yeah, you've heard, you've heard the pagans. That's the way they operate. They exercise power over people, but you are a not like that people. Like that, it won't be like that among you. This is Mark 10, 42 to 45. It's a not-so-among-you kind of people, a contrast society, an alternative community. You, if you want to be great, you're going to be last. You want to be first, you're going to be a slave to all. And then he gives the reason in Mark 10, 45, because the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. It's a countercultural way, this way of Jesus. To be a disciple is to be a not-so-among-you type of people. Shown in service, where the first is a slave to all. His way is not natural to us. It requires a new mindset, a reorientation that is full of paradox. Full of paradox. Jesus did come into His glory and He was in the middle of two others. It's just not the kind of glory they were expecting. The kingdom of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray.
Father, how kind of you. How kind of you to free us. We glory in your work and in your wisdom. How beautiful is your plan. We, we exult in you and are grateful to be included. May we go as redeemed people. Give us the power to live as free people. Satan has no claim on us. The penalty of sin is done because of the cross. The power of sin has been strangled because of the spirits. And death is the last enemy that we need not fear because you've removed its sting. It has no victory. May we go resting and rejoicing in the new Exodus work of Jesus, your son, your servant. In his name, amen. Yeah. Okay, PJ Wenzel from Columbus, Ohio. Um, when you were when you were looking at uh, Isaiah and preparing for this, um, you know who were you looking at commentaries wise? You know who'd you find the most helpful? Uh, not just like in terms of like yeah, in terms of the exegetical piece there, but who did you find was most kingdom oriented? Yeah. And when they saw that, yeah, yeah, good question. Um, some of it's so technical. The best place is uh, is Rick Watts' dissertation. Um, I don't even know. I'm bad with book titles. I think he did it under Bill though, and uh, it's on it's on Isaiah background to Mark. Now the best place to go if you don't want to read it requires Greek and Hebrew. It's very it's a dissertation, very technical. The best place to go though to probably see that in summary form is he did the entry in Mark in the the, the volume edited by Carson and Bill the commentary of the New Testament use of the Old Testament. Watts did Mark, and it's superb. So that'd be the first place to go. You can chase his footnotes. Uh, Joel Marcus has a good book on, on Mark's use of the Old Testament. I think it's called The Way of the Lord. And you can chase footnotes from there. Yeah, Bill would be great, yeah. Gary George, Worcester, Massachusetts. You've said that there were 590 quotations of Isaiah in the New Testament. Um, tell us a little bit about the use of the Septuagint in the New Testament versus it, the Masoretic text of the Hebrew in the New Testament. And secondly, how many quotations do you think there are or do you know there to be of the Old Testament in the New Testament? Could you answer the second question first? I don't know. I don't know. Boy, that would be... I mean, it's got to be massive, though. One of the things I love about the Holman Christian uh, standard is they bold in the Old Testament quotations. So they jump out at you. So when you say 590, are you saying, are they direct quotations? Are they word for word? Are they allusions? Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't do that myself. Okay. I picked that up out of an, an article... That I, don't, I think it was called Isaiah and Luke, the, an academic article called Isaiah and Luke, where I saw that, and I don't remember. I think it just says references. I don't think he specifies. Okay. So I don't know if it's. So direct what about book. the use of the Septuagint by New Testament writers? Do yeah, I wish Doctor Gentry was still here. I know. <laughs> I don't. What are, what are you exactly asking about that? Well, if if I understand correctly, I think seventy percent 
the quotations of the Old and the New Testament are from the Septuagint rather than the Masoretic text. Yeah. And is there any you know, background uh, reasoning for that? Yeah, no, I wouldn't be able to answer that. I'd be able to just agree that the Septuagint was the Bible of the Apostles. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so m- almost all of the work I did was the LXX. Allusions and quotations and those words, that's, that's what Mark is dealing with. Okay. So... It does present a challenge at times because uh, in English translations, because sometimes the old there may be a slight nuance between the LXX and the Masoretic when the New Testaments are working with the LXX instead. So sometimes it requires a little more work, but I don't see it as a problem. 